This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. These are the headlines in just the past week, and we're not in a foreign war. This is not World War II or Korea or Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan, but it may be worse. Here are the main headlines with a little explanatory embellishment where needed by me. First, ex-governor of Michigan charged with neglect in Flint water crisis. That, of course, is Rick Snyder, the former governor of Michigan who oversaw the state when a water crisis devastated the city of Flint. He's been charged by Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel with two counts of willful neglect of duty. Next, ex-Michigan governor faces two charges in Flint water scandal. Next, ex-governor's lawyer says charges in Flint crisis are, quote, meritless. Next, Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky appeared in the Capitol with COVID-19. Next, Republican freshman Congressman Peter Meyer of Grand Rapids votes to impeach Trump for inciting Capitol riots. Next, Congressman Tim Wahlberg calls Trump impeachment ill-advised. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell says it's Quote, about accountability. Next, two Democrats call for censure of Maddock. Now, Maddock is State Representative Matt Maddock, Republican of Milford, who's been a guest on this program twice. And he is the husband of Michonne Maddock, who is getting ready to run for co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party at the Republican State Convention early next month. Next. Two Michigan Republican congressmen join House Democrats to impeach Trump for inciting Capitol riots. Next, Flint water crisis shows need for whistleblower protections against governors, says State Representative Annette Glenn, Republican of Midland. Next, judge plans to rule on Flint water crisis settlement in next eight days. Now, this is separate from the indictment of Governor Snyder and many people in his administration by the Attorney General. This is a U.S. District Court judge who says she intends to rule by January 21st on whether to grant preliminary approval of an historic settlement of civil lawsuits to the tune of over $640 million related to the Flint water crisis. Next, A Michigan state prison is in outbreak status with 774 inmates positive for coronavirus. Next, Washtenaw County decriminalizes consensual sex work. And that's the new euphemism for prostitution, legalized prostitution in Ann Arbor and apparently all of Washtenaw County. Next. Enbridge pledges to defy Governor Whitmer Line 5 shutdown order. Now, that is Enbridge Incorporation, which says it will continue operating its Line 5 oil pipeline under the Straits of Mackinac despite a pending deadline 
to close the controversial oil line this spring following an easement revocation several months ago by Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Next, Congressman Fred Upton votes to impeach Trump for inciting Capitol riots. Next, vaccinating Michigan's long-term residents is high priority, but it's off to a slow start. Next, restaurant leaders furious that Michigan government will keep indoor dining closed. Next, wear a damn mask, Debbie Dingle says, proposing $1,000 fines for Congress members if they do not. Next, attorney for Snyder calls Flint water charges, quote, smear campaign, unquote, against former governor. Next, Flint residents hopeful water crisis charges against Snyder and other officials will bring justice. Next, Congressman Peter Meyer draws primary opponent after his vote to impeach President Trump. Next, yoga classes, other non-contact indoor fitness group activities now allowed. This means indoor exercise classes and non-contact sports can resume under a new state public health order effective January 16th until January 31st, even though restaurants must wait until February 1st, according to Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Next, Shirky may have had COVID-19 on last House session day. Now, this refers to Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky, Republican of Clark Lake in Jackson County, is accurate and he contracted COVID-19 on December 19th. He would have had it when he visited the final substantive House session on December 21st to listen to then-Speaker Lee Chatfield's farewell address because Chatfield is term-limited and leaves office or did leave office on December 31st. Next, new committee rules allow remote participation, but not voting. That means members of the State House of Representatives will be able to remotely participate in committee hearings this session. That means virtual participation. Under new standing rules adopted by the State House this week, but they will not be able to vote by teleconference. Next, according to the governor, no specific capital threats. But Attorney General Dana Nessel, quote, gravely concerned, unquote, about violence. Next, the FBI says Delaware man says God gave permission for him to kidnap and to kill. Next, Stamas suggests state Senate should hold up appointments until economy opens. The Senate, I'm going to elaborate here a little bit, should hold up all of the governor's appointments until she has ended, quote, punitive shutdowns, unquote, and opened up the economy, according to Senate Appropriations Committee Chair Jim Stamas, a Republican of Midland, in a statement he made this week. Next, Senate Bill 1 gives legislature power to extend Department of Health and Human Services emergency orders after 28 days. To clarify a little bit, 
This session's first Senate bill is a second bid to end any statewide public health orders after 28 days unless there's legislative approval to extend it. By the way, such legislation passed in the last session and was vetoed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And you can be sure if this gets all the way through this legislature and winds up on her desk, she will veto it again. Next, according to the state, all vaccines distributed, either administered or scheduled. That means, according to the governor's chief operating officer, 831,150, this is approaching a million, vaccine doses that the state received have either been administered or have been scheduled to be given, even though there's been criticism the state has been slow to get these vaccines out. Next, ban on concealed carry of firearms, weapons, pistols, if you can imagine, has been brought back up as an issue. But Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky shoots it down. Senator Shirky said, quote, there will be no ban on concealed carry as far as I'm concerned, unquote, on the same day Some Senate Democrats resurrected pleas to banish firearms out of the structure in the face of potential civil unrest. Folks, that's just uh, a smattering of headlines covering most of the main topics of relevance here in Michigan. But there were a lot of others, and there are going to be a lot more in the coming weeks. And you got to stay tuned here to hear about them. That's all for this segment, but... Stay tuned because we got some interesting guests coming up. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. As promised, we have returned and are very fortunate to have with us on the line our old friend from the Southland, John Cuvion, and he is president and founder of JMC Analytics and Polling, JMC Enterprises in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. John Cuvion, welcome back to The Political Insider. Good morning. Good to be here today. Well, John, uh, you've had a lot going on, especially recently, particularly with a poll you took about the Georgia special U.S. Senate race for two seats in the U.S. Senate. Tell us about that. Certainly. So basically, the interesting dynamic regarding the Georgia Senate races was that on Election Day, you did basically have a 51-49 Republican edge for both of those Senate seats. And very few people were thinking that the Democrats were actually going to win them, given that Republicans in Georgia had had a perfect recent history with winning these special elections. And so I decided once I saw the early vote coming in in December and it was lopsidedly Democratic friendly, I thought I would test that supposed conventional wisdom by polling the race. And this was a crowdfunded poll, meaning that it was truly an independent poll and no one could make any accusations of bias. But the more important thing was my poll was one of the first to show that the Democrats had an unquestioned lead in both Senate races. 
And the interesting thing that came from that poll, not just the fact that the results ended up echoing what the poll said, but I also saw a bit of the so-called shy Trump voter in, from comparing the election results to what my poll had to say. In other words, we're talking about the Democrats had a lead, and while they ultimately won both races, there was a hidden Trumpish vote out there that manifested itself in terms of support for the Republican candidate in the more rural areas that was not picked up by poll. And that's similar to what happened in the presidential election, where these thoughts that Joe Biden was going to win in a landslide and the Democrats would pick up strength in Congress were contradicted by the actual election results. So that was kind of the interesting takeaway from the poll I did in Georgia was not just being the canary in the coal mine, which is something I pride myself on doing professionally, but the fact that you did have this kind of shy Trump voter that they're kind of tough to pick up on radar when President Trump gets personally involved in a race. Yeah, you took these polls, didn't you, about a week or 10 days before the election? I did. Uh, December 28th and 29th was when I did my field work. Yeah, and the election was on January 5th, and actually the margin of the Democratic victories uh, by Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were a little narrower than your poll show, but your poll really showed uh, a week out that uh, the Republicans were in real trouble down there. And yes. as you say, maybe these shy Trump voters showed up in slightly greater force than everybody estimated, but it wasn't enough to make the difference. Correct. And there's a couple of things going on here. First, with regards to the shy Trump voter, I drilled down into every region of Georgia and compared the results against my poll numbers. And what was interesting was in Atlanta and the first couple immediate rings of suburbia around Atlanta, in other words, think Wayne and Livingston and Oakland and Macomb counties here, the poll numbers were almost exactly equal down to the percentage point to the election results. But once we got into the more rural areas of Georgia, which is a shrinking part of the state's population, what did happen was the Democratic vote, according to my poll, was higher than the Democratic vote that ended up happening on election night. So that's that's where I, that's why I coined the term shy Trump voter was in Atlanta and the suburbs, the poll was dead on, but there was some additional Republican strength in those rural areas. I have seen, John Cuvion, some figures in the last few days uh, that analyze what is called base party strength in every state mm-hmm. in the country. And that's a composite of election results over the last decade, particularly tilted more recently, let's say, to 2018, 2020. And one of the things that was interesting to me was that Georgia, according to what I saw in these statistics, still supposedly has about a five and a half percent Republican edge overall in Georgia, actually a bigger edge than the Republican Party has, let's say, in Florida. And and I'm just curious whether the January 5th result, in your view, is um, a canary in the coal mine, let's call it, your phrase, uh, uh, indication of what's happening in Georgia, things shifting going forward, or 
whether it was really kind of a one-off aberration to a great extent because of the presence of Donald Trump and the lingering effect of Trump on the January 5th election with all his comments and everything going on that, you know, kind of colored what happened in Georgia. What do you think? So what my thought is is this. When you're talking about relative party strength, Florida is much more inelastic than Georgia is, meaning that even though the Republican margin is less, it's a very, very consistent margin that barely shifts. In Georgia, you have a shift, but I do question the extent to which it is a permanent shift, because basically what happened, that was an election where the Republicans, in my opinion, did everything they could to lose it. In other words, first, they wasted an entire month of November not even trying to define their Democratic opponents and instead getting caught up in all this election fraud nonsense. So that was missed opportunity number one. Missed opportunity number two was you had 71 percent of the vote was cast before Election Day because Georgia has some pretty permissive early voting. And Democrats are rolling up the score, and I saw that from day one of in-person early voting starting. And, you know, the final thought when you're talking about Georgia's political trending is while it is emblematic of the problems that the Republicans are having in places such as Oakland County and the suburbs of Atlanta, I also noticed that you had a third item on the ballot uh, in addition to those two Senate races, which was a public service commission runoff. And even though Democrats won the two Senate races, 51-49, the Republican actually won that public service commission vote. So in other words, you did have some ticket splitting going on. I do think the moral of the story here is doing everything you can to lose an election is not smart, number one. Number two, the early vote matters. And number three, I think that you do have to pay attention to those suburban coalitions if you hope to reattain majority status. And Georgia is a perfect example of that because you did not have a large Hispanic vote that moved towards Trump like you did in Texas, because you'll notice that Texas ended up going for Trump by a bigger margin than Georgia, even though you did have that suburban shifting going on there. Right. Look, we're going to talk more about this and some other issues in just a minute, if everybody stays tuned with John Cuvion, who is the president and founder of JMC Enterprises in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Be back in a minute. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with John Cuvion. He is president and founder of JMC Enterprises in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, did some fascinating poll work before the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff on January 5th, in which it was proved he was astoundingly accurate. Uh, Let me just ask you, because you talked, John Cuvion, about early voting, mail-in voting, is that something that is going to be as significant in 2022-24 going forward? Is the genie out of the bottle Or maybe is this a little bit exaggerated this year, its significance, mail-in voting, 
because of the coronavirus? What do you think? I take my attitude about it is I do believe the ground has shifted somewhat in terms of people wanting to vote before Election Day. I'm not yet convinced that it will be to the same magnitude that it was in 2020. And just to give you some statistics, I show that about 106 out of 157 million who had voted in the 2020 elections voted for Election Day. So that's already two-thirds vote early. But this is the part which is what leads to my doubt. Of the 106 million who voted before Election Day, I show that 74 million voted by mail and 32 million in person. The thing you have to appreciate about mail-in voting was some of it was undoubtedly people who were concerned enough about the pandemic to where they did not want to be in a crowd situation that could be a super spreader event. The other part of the coin is that you had some state governments that jumped on the 100% mail-in vote bandwagon, like what happened in New Jersey and New York. And so I'm of the opinion that you get the pandemic under control, I think more people would be comfortable voting the way they always have pre-pandemic. Now, the one thing that is the big question mark, in my opinion, is the volume of people who voted by mail Some of them, I think, would go back to being regular Election Day voters, but I think a lot of those, now that they realize how convenient it is not to have to deal with Election Day lines, may indeed become early in-person voters just because they like the idea of getting it out the way. So I think that, to some extent, is a seismic shift because people are creatures of habit, and especially if you are elderly and you're used to voting at your polling place on Election Day, and now you realize that it doesn't have to be that way. I do think those kinds of events, such as pandemics, can facilitate a change in behavior. Absolutely. Let me shift topics a little bit here. Mm-hmm. You had a very sad development uh, post-election in northeast Louisiana. I think there's a congressional seat that was yes. won by a fellow named Luke Letlow. And uh, tragically, he caught covid 19 and died uh, before he could even take the oath of office as a new member of Congress. He's a Republican who won in a fairly strong Republican district. What's going to happen going forward to fill that seat? Because as you know, the margin in the U.S. House is very narrow. It's the smallest Democratic majority since World War II, and every seat counts. Uh, What do you think is going to happen? So you technically have two congressional vacancies in Louisiana. One of them was a gentleman named Cedric Richmond, who's an African-American Democrat, who is he resigned to take a position in the Biden administration. Now, that district went three to one for Joe Biden. So obviously that one is very much a cinch for the Democrats to hold. But getting back to your original question, yes, Luke Letlow He barely had a chance to savor his election night victory, and he came down with the coronavirus literally days after his victory. And then he was hospitalized the whole time, and, of course, he's no longer with us. What is happening in that race? It's going to be a special election called in March with the possibility for an April runoff because Louisiana has an open primary system where everybody of all candidates runs on one ballot. So you have a March-April primary and runoff for that seat and the other seat, which is heavily Democratic. Now, I would fully expect uh, Luke Letlow's 
a widow, his, his widowed wife, is going to run for the seat in his place, and I would expect that she would have an easy time with victory. And for disclosure's sake, I have done work with not just Luke Letlow's predecessor, uh, Dr. Ralph Abraham, but Luke himself and you know, possibly his wife. But point being is, I do believe that there would be a large sympathy factor, plus the fact that Luke had won his uh, runoff overwhelmingly. So this is almost certain to remain in Republican hands. The Democrats don't really have a strong bench in that part of the state anymore. And President Trump carried the district by 30 points, kind of as an additional exclamation point about the Republicans' chances at holding on to that seat. Right. Let me ask you big picture, going forward Mm -hmm. nationally, 2022, and in the South and in Louisiana, but everywhere in the country, Mm -hmm. what do you see developing, evolving in the next two years? So in the short term, I think the Republicans are in severe trouble based out of the severe blowback from the insurrection. But heading to 2022, the thing you have to appreciate so, number one, the Democrats are very narrowly in control of both houses of Congress. And in the House, I calculated that 21 Democrats were elected by less than 5 vote, uh, a 5% vote margin, which means they're already getting on thin ice. And then, of course, in the Senate, where you have 50 Democrats plus Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote – You have the Georgia and Arizona races, which the Democrats narrowly won, because those were special elections that are going to be on the ballot in 2022. So again, you have the real potential of Democrats losing those seats. And the reason I'm saying all this is that once all of the blowback from the insurrection has faded, the question then becomes, do the Democrats take a moderate tack, or do they play to their progressive base, which causes them to lose a lot of seats? And we've seen this happen, by the way, in 1994, 2010, and 2014, when Democrats moved too far to the left, and it cost them heavily. So at this point, do you think the odds are fairly good that the Republicans might be able to pick up the necessary seats they need to regain control of the U.S. House in 2022? And what about the Senate? Uh, which way is that going to go? both houses of Congress, they're even odds because setting aside the blowback from what happened on January 6th, one of the kind of political laws of gravity is that the party in power loses seats during a midterm, and the only times that did not happen – was in 1934, 1998, and 2002. So in other words, you've got a very strong historical precedent for the Democrats losing seats. And then, of course, we haven't even started talking about what their legislative agenda is going to be. Because the thing is, I think that what people voted in was a desire for civility and to solve the pandemic. But if, you know, there does not appear to be progress in terms of vaccinating people, reducing, eliminating restrictions and such, I think the Democrats can be in big trouble in two years. So that's certainly something I'm going to be keeping an eye out uh, for over the next two years. Does the fact that you finally got what is supposed to be a progressive Democrat, African-American elected in 
the heartland of Dixie mm-hmm. uh, in Atlanta with Raphael Warnock. I mean, that really was kind of significant in the sense that he was a very different kind of a candidate than, let's say, oh, Doug, yeah. Doug Jones in Alabama three years ago, yep. who won the special election due to, I would say, unusual circumstances. <laughs> yes. So uh, is that a harbinger of things to come? Or again, is it a one-off? And We're out of time almost. Go ahead. I'm not convinced. And you'll remember, too, that even though Doug Jones won due to special circumstances, he overwhelmingly lost three years later. So like I said, uh, Senator Warnock will certainly have to be more moderate than his rhetoric on the campaign trail suggested. Right. Listen, I wish we could go on. You've been great. Uh, John Kubion, who is uh, president of JMC Analytics and Polling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thank you, John Kubion. My pleasure. Be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us none other than Mark Grebner, long-time associated with practical political consulting in Lansing and an elected Ingham County Commissioner. Mark Grebner, thanks for being with us. Okay, Mark, uh, I just want to ask you kind of two questions to start. Um, What did we learn from the vote? in November, let's say here in Michigan in particular, and what about the continuing transformation of voting toward vote by mail? Well, I can speak for what I learned. I don't know what anybody else learned. The most the most surprising thing I learned was that if you boil the Republican Party down to kind of crackpots and fools and loud shouting jerks, and you add that to opportunists, you come real close to 50% of the vote. <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of startling because cause the assumption has always been that, you know, that, that the Republican Party consists mainly of, of sensible people. And, uh, uh, you know, if they're going to win an election, they put together sensible people in a coalition with people who maybe aren't sensible, and they get to more than 50%. But and, and so the idea for on, on the Democratic side is, you know, if you if you just chip away all the sensible people, the the people that they have left will be a pathetic minority. That's what that's what the polls seem to show. But it, I don't think it's true. I think that if you put together, you know, the kind of cold, calculating, ruthless people and the the bunch of new people that uh, Donald Trump stirred up, you in a good year if he doesn't if he doesn't break down at the last minute and do completely crazy things like he did, you could put together a majority. It's well, kind of kind of startling. Well, do you think uh, the Republicans, particularly here in Michigan, have any chance of winning back these so-called sensible people that they used to have in the good old days uh, and adding them to maybe the crackpots, maybe not as many of them, and or uh, people that, you know, are just political opportunists, as you say, and uh, do better in Michigan than they did this year or two years ago? Um, I think that it won't be the genius of a campaign that assembles such coalition. It'll be events. And so if the events just happen to fall out differently so that 
a few more people are unhappy about, say, uh, say the Democrats are running things and therefore alienating the public, which is what we do whenever we get control, <laughs> just as the Republicans do. So, or, or the result of economic uh, uh, recession or a war or something that, that mobilizes some people, a little bit of additional shifting in the electorate is enough to create a Republican majority uh, whose core is kind of, uh, well, out of control, irresponsible, <laughs> bizarre, wacky. I mean, believes in space aliens and Elvis Presley at the Kalamazoo Mall. Well, okay, let me ask you one question kind of related to all this uh, down-on-the-ground tactical. The continuing transformation of voting toward vote-by-mail, I mean, is it here to stay uh, to the degree that it was prominent this year, or do you think that maybe it was exaggerated this year by the coronavirus? Uh, I know Proposal 3 that passed in 2018 was a huge factor uh, in increasing uh, advanced voting, mail-in voting, but going forward, I mean, do you think vote by mail is here to stay in as significant numbers and percentage of the vote as it was this year? Yeah, um, I, I think that this that the that the curve has a little bit of a bend to it, but the curve was very much toward over over the last twenty years toward more and more vote by mail. It started out being a very small number of ballots, and what happens is that people who vote by mail kind of fall in love with it. And, and so, as we see statistically, if somebody first votes by absentee ballot, I mean, if, if they vote in person for a while, they, then one time they vote by absentee ballot, it's a pretty good bet that the, from then on they will vote by absentee ballot more and more and more. Um, like many things that the coronavirus touches, the coronavirus didn't really change what was going on so much as it accelerated events that were already taking place. You know, people were already moving toward online education at a glacial pace, and suddenly we jumped there. The schools are going to spring back somewhat, but, but we're never going to undo that everybody's learned about Zoom, for example. That's, that's a different thing than voting, but we're never going to undo the mail-in vote. But probably then, when we finally get through the coronavirus epidemic, we're going to see, a, for a while, a smaller number of of vote by mail ballots, but but it won't be, we won't go back to where we were, and the curve will then continue forward. Probably we will eventually get to the point that Washington and Oregon and California have reached, which is that you vote by mail, and one particular way of doing a specific way of voting by mail is to show up on election day and pretend that it's a mailbox. In other words, uh, election day voting will just be kind of a specific kind of absentee voting one that happens to be conducted on Election Day in person, if that makes sense. So, so we're going to see more and more absentee voting. But again, in the short run, it'll probably recoil a little bit. But for me, the most important technical fact about this is that if you're trying to predict who is going to vote in this election, you know, an election that's held a month from today, let's say, it used to be we'd look at all kinds of voter records and see who voted by absentee ballot or in person 10 years ago, eight years ago, six years ago, who voted in the primary, who didn't vote in the primary, who's moved in recently, that sort of thing. But today, more and more, we have to just ask the simple question, well, who got sent a ballot? I mean, so we don't have to look into history so much. We can actually look at this election 
and we can see who's likely to vote because we can see who has filled out an application, who has been mailed a ballot, who has received their ballot, who has returned their ballot. And so elections are changing in the minds of the candidates and the campaigns away from looking at voter history and toward instead looking at who's actually in the process of voting right now. And so they, they are the people who deserve our attention. They're the people that we should be spending ad money on is, you know, the 5,000. If you're running for a probate judge, you don't want to know so much who voted in the probate judge race eight years ago. You want to know who has a ballot today. Who, does, who, who did the clerk mail ballots to yesterday? And, and so it, it just changes where you're spending your money and who you're focused on. Right. Mark Grevner, let me ask you um... – what does actual election fraud look like, and do we know that there wasn't any in Michigan this year? Well, I think we know there was election fraud. There was this guy in Canton. I don't know if it's exactly fraud. That's a technical term. But there's this guy in Canton who pretty much admits that he forged his daughter's signature on an absentee ballot. He voted her ballot and mailed it in. And I think they're both the daughter and the guy who did it are both Democrats. So anybody who says there was no fraud— I mean, I, he, he may have had her permission, but we've got a case of, of election fraud. Okay, so, so if that's the question, was there election fraud, there's a pretty good case against this, this guy in Canton. <laughs> now, I, haven't, I don't know of a second case, but, but there is one. <laughs> but it's not enough to really make a difference. Is that what you're but, saying? But, but, that's how, but that's what election fraud looks like. It looks like people, and, and maybe somebody doing it not not semi-innocently like that, but it looks like something that will leave paperwork snags, right? His signature didn't match hers. Let's imagine that somebody did that for a thousand voters, that somebody got a thousand people to fake the signatures of relatives. They went around and convinced people to do this. Well, you'd have a thousand people that had been talked to. You'd have a thousand people who might call the police or the papers. You'd have a thousand people who personally might have legal problems and try to get out of them by telling the DA, well, if you don't prosecute me, I can tell you something really hot. I know who has been doing so-and-so. They came to me, and you'd have a thousand loose ends like that. You'd have a thousand ballots that were signed by the wrong person, and the real person was clearly not in town to sign them, even though the ballot was mailed to Canton and the daughter is living, say, in Hawaii, Nonetheless, the ballot was returned from Canton with her signature, right? That you'd have a thousand cases like that, <laughs> and people, many of them, willing to point to them. So real fraud involves terrible exposure at all of its edges. And that would only be a thousand votes, right? That wouldn't be enough to have affected the election. But to do a thousand ballots, you'd have at least dozens of election workers who'd be tipped off. You'd have hundreds of contacts. You'd have just, you'd have a thousand documents, all of which cried out, investigate me. <laughs> it's hard to do, man. It's, you gotta, you gotta control the press, the judges, the prosecutor, and the police to do election fraud. That's why election fraud is always done by the government, not by private people. Good points. Listen, we could go on. There's some other questions I want to ask you. We'll get you back, and you can address them down the road. But that's all the time we got with Mark Brebner of Practical Political Consulting in Lansing. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you for tolerating me. (laughs) 
We'll be back next week with, you can count on it, more 